I've had at least several people that I've heard that I had heard in my in my program say that they were at a PWI doing a graduate program and decided to leave and come to Howard because they did not get the support for the type the research they wanted to do or nobody was there that could really even support them, right? So they wanted to research things related to the black community or the black life and experience in this country or abroad. And there just wasn't that support at the institution they were at. So they went to a place that they knew would support such a thing and had the expertise to support such a thing, right? There's something that the scholar Manning Marable calls the black intellectual tradition. Right, and it's speaking to a long intellectual lineage of being scholar activists, right? Not just producing knowledge for knowledge sake, but for, like for what? What are we doing with this knowledge? How are we applying it to improve things around us, to improve our own community, to improve our own life and experience, especially in a context of uh, American Africans where obviously there's a large oppression historically and in the present. Welcome to this new episode of Papa PhD. Today, I have the great pleasure of having with me Kweli Zuccheri. Kweli Zuccheri was born and raised in Falls Church, Virginia. He has a BA in journalism and mass communication and a minor in social entrepreneurship from UNC at Chapel Hill, as well as a master's in psychology, 2018, and a PhD in developmental psychology from Howard University. Both his master's thesis and dissertation focused on exploring the impact of African-centered school-based programming on American-African student racial and cultural identity, as well as American-African student learning. Prior to his recent graduate studies, he also studied ancient African Kemetic language for two years in Howard's Department of Africana Studies, and has been a facilitator for the Egypt on the Potomac field trip of Washington, D.C. for the last decade. Welcome to Papa PhD, Kweli. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I'm super, super happy to, to have you here. Kweli and I have a, have a relationship. Kweli's partner is my cousin. So it's, it's a very special episode for me. We don't live so far from each other, but we haven't had so many chances to, to meet. Uh, but... When I saw announcement and, pu and publications around Quelly's graduation, uh, and, I, what I, and I saw his interests, and then we discussed a little bit more about uh, his heritage and, and his family story, I said, okay, I need to invite Quelly on Papa PhD. We, we need to talk about, uh, about what he has to, to share. And, you know, I'm, like, I'm excited to be here because it's um, still, still almost too soon, right? It's only last year that I finished, and I'm still a little traumatized. Anyone who's going through that process knows it's traumatic. Um, but it does help also, I think, to process and get past the trauma to just talk it out here. So it's nice to get that exactly. opportunity to just kind of break down how that went. <laughs> I, I agree completely. There's a therapeutic aspect to it, let's say. But I've seen this, you know, and a, a lot of um, the conversations I have on the podcast or with people who, you know, who come to me through the podcast has to do with... Um, you know, uh, changing careers, you know, transition moments in your young adult and in your young professional life. And um, I do think uh, that looking back, you know, taking a moment, let's say this, these 45 minutes, but to, to look back and, uh, and uh, re not rehash, but take another look at what happened without the emotion that you're going through when it's happening often helps uh, people, uh, To have a more positive look on on things that happened uh plus um you know kind of be able to write their professional story because this is the context usually i have conversations about but take all of that which while you live through it and anyone who's gone through a phd has had you know mo moments of, of suffering and, and hardship but be able to look with with that emotional distance and say okay you know there was there was constructive stuff there's i learned a lot and uh, and this is part of me professionally and i and i can use it uh, even the, even the hardships are part of who i am now professionally and and have yeah. has brought me strength uh, that i that i wouldn't have if i hadn't gone through it anyway maybe i'm i'm waxing poetic a little bit but i, I think you <laughs> you uh, you understand a little bit what i what i'm saying a hundred percent. I mean, there's a resilience that you have to have and develop to get through a program. Um, all the rigmarole. I mean, I think the last two years, it took me seven years total. I mean, I got my master's along the way. It was a joint program and that helped at least to get something. And I figured I elected to do so because 
you know, I wanted something in my hands in case, God forbid, something happens that I don't actually finish. Um, but I think after five years, and I mean, throughout that, having a full-time job and a family and, and other activities, some of which I had to put down and just admit I can't do everything at once. Um, you know, after, uh, those last two years were really sustained me, I think, more than anything was like, I need to be done. I need to finish this. I need, <laughs> need to be off my shoulders. Um, I started because I was very excited about what I was doing. But, you know, you start to get burnt and just... Um, want to be done but that that helped push me i think at, at the very end i mean mm-hmm. it's kind of like pledging a fraternity like if by the end i don't know if anyone anyone's listening that's done that they know like by the end you just want to be done and live your <laughs> life again <laughs> so it's kind of like that i i agree and and uh there's this thing about uh there's this thing people say a, a good a good thesis is a finished thesis and uh and it's true that it's it's it gets harder it's like if you're uh You know, you're walking into into a, a swamp, and it, each step takes more and more energy in that last stretch. But uh, but then, you know, if you know that you have this goal, uh, it, it's it's all worth it in the end, uh, I think. And it's worth pushing uh, pushing that little bit and, and tiring yourself a little bit. And you talked about uh, being being traumatized. There's some some trauma to it for sure. Uh, it's it's like a anyway. It makes me think of a of a of a birth. You know, it's it's you you've gone through this really difficult thing, and then you're on the other side, and uh, you know you you get your your diploma, and you kind of have to make sense of all of it. <laughs> so, no, I I know it's emotionally uh it's a it's a, a particular and an interesting uh, experience, um, but I, I also don't want to um, uh, not acknowledge. Uh, that it may even be more than just uh, an ordeal to some people and it may affect them in terms of mental health and uh, and for people who are i i always say take care of your mind first and then you know even if you need to take a pause on your thesis writing etc and then resume but uh, anyway that's my it's my spiel about mental health it always comes first that did happen to me i think in year four after the majority of my classwork was done and again i was working a full-time job. I mean, I worked at Howard University. I still do. So I was fortunate to be able to also take classes that have made it much more convenient, of course. But um, after about four years of coursework, I really did have to take a step back and realize there's a huge opportunity cost to doing this because I don't actually have time to do everything I was doing. I was doing. I didn't actually have time, right? So, um, you know, without getting into all the details, you know, relationships suffered, um, other things got neglected. So I did have to take some time to step back and say, let me just figure some things out before I continue because obviously that family and other things come first. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the stress level. So that's number one, like you said, I think having a healthy regimen of meditation <laughs> and mm-hmm. just consciousness about how you're feeling and what you're doing day to day without, instead of just getting caught up in the routine and the rigmarole of, of making sure you're on top of everything, um, it's just as important, easier said than done, but it is definitely possible. You know, and I think I think to a large part you want to rely on your networks. I mean, I couldn't have finished without family around me, uh, my partner, my mother, who helped take care of the kids very many times along the way. Mm-hmm. Other people, my cohorts in the program, who you know, if I have a question or if I'm not trying, my professors might not be available, but they are there for me late night or whatever. Like you really realize how how much you have to rely on other people, and that's just yeah. that's a lesson of life. You really nobody makes it on their own. Period. I mean, America has this myth of rugged individualism that's a complete myth nobody is successful on their own so um i think this process helps illuminate that i agree you know i produced a video on the on the the papa phd youtube channel which is it takes a village to 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 do your phd you're not gonna go you know you're not gonna go it alone Uh, although it's your work at the end i totally agree with you that who you know the whole community that's around you be it directly your peers your your professor but also your family your friends uh, your you know whatever uh, um other groups you're part of are really 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 important to m- make this experience which is a hard one doable and to to help you get to the end of it for sure it's super interesting one of one of the things that i really wanted to talk to you about uh that i didn't want to miss because again You know the the audience of Papa PhD is people who are thinking of getting a PhD or in the middle of their PhD, you know, who, or who are in the transition after the PhD. And you mentioned a couple of times um, uh, in passing that 
you you were working during your PhD and uh, you had a you know you had a family a, a young family uh, but I, I'd really like you to uh, if possible talk a little bit about how that was made possible for you because I know that the fact that you worked had a, a positive impact let's say in the financial aspect of doing of going through grad school but also there was time that you had to give to that job so I, I'd really be curious if you if possible to have your input on what can work to um do a phd and be working also at the same time because i don't think it's um it's something that i've seen a lot and i think a lot of people might might probably be curious of what is out there even in universities because if i if i'm right this work that you mentioned was at university right So I've worked at Howard University the last 12 years. I started as a student employee. I was just a briefly, brief period of time, I was a visiting student as an undergrad, but okay. um, actually didn't actually go to school undergrad at Howard. Um, but was a student employee, then a wage employee, salary, became manager, and now I'm director of user experience and web strategy. So I've you know, spent some time there um, just in the professional sense. Um, but really, yeah, like the, the huge benefit of working at the university for me has been that I've, I'm able to get a pre-education, right? So the first couple of years, I actually took post-back studies um, for Africana studies, right? And that's why I studied ancient African language, really to understand ancient African civilization as a means of understanding that culture um, in East Africa and ancient Egypt. Um, and I thought I was going to get into Africana studies further, but decided instead to get into psychology. And I mean, that was, then that was a seven-year process. And I think it's been, you know, when you work at a university, that is a benefit. Not all universities have the same level of benefit, but at Howard University, we can take up to eight credits or two courses per semester, which is really good, relatively speaking. So I took summer school as well, just to kind of expedite that process. Mm -hmm. um, I've always had managers or people that I report to that are very supportive, right? Because we're at a university and I think understanding the importance of people pursuing higher education is really important in that atmosphere. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, I've, I've always been given the space and flexibility to do those things because you know, I get my job done, right? So there's definitely been times where if I have to go to class during the day, I might have to go home and finish some work stuff, mm -hmm. right? And that's, and that's just a sacrifice. I mean, I think as simple as you can do as much as you can to maintain mental and emotional health. And it's still, it's a sacrifice, right? Every time is a sacrifice. Time yeah. is not, time is finite, even though time doesn't really exist. It's all a psychological <laughs> construct, right? But it does actually exist day to day. It does mean something. Yeah, we need so, to deal with it. We need um, to, yeah. <laughs> so I think just being in that atmosphere has been, um, very beneficial and, and helped um, in terms of supporting it, being working at a university. So of course, there's not there's only so many university jobs that exist, but I mean that is definitely a an avenue I think most people don't think about. That's it. It's um, a, I hadn't heard about it before before reading reading your your journey. Yeah, yeah. Tuition remission. So, um, and you know, I think when I was in the program, uh, I definitely had conversations with a lot of my cohorts and people, you know, classmates. And them just talking about how much debt they were accruing by going to school, right? Paying, taking out loans. And, you know, I believe education should be free for all of us. It would benefit the whole, you know, instead of spending money on military and war, just put half of that in education and everyone would get a free education. Mm -hmm. um, but I felt very, I mean, that actually helped motivate me too, just knowing that, hey, I'm so fortunate right now to be in a program where I get it paid for. I don't have to worry about paying this debt off next. I even have professors who told me about the debt they're still paying off and they've been teaching for like 10 years. Oh, wow. Right. So like, I just, that helped motivate me. Like I have, I can't complain basically. Right. You know, of course. Um, this is, this is paid for. So I think that, yeah, that was a huge benefit just in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so just uh, uh, out of, again, for, for people who are listening and thinking about uh, how this can, how, what conversations lead to a position like this. So you said you started working there when you, you weren't even a student of the university, but how do you, who do you reach out to, to ask, Hey, is there, are there positions for me as a student here? Um, well, I mean, you know, when you, it's, it's basically though, like if, if you're coming into it as trying to get hired as a staff, as someone like staff, um, you would just see what benefits the university offers as a staff member. So like your job might have nothing to do with obviously what you want to study. Or it could, of course, mm -hmm. right? A lot of people I've seen come in and get an MBA because that really relates to almost anything you could be doing. Um, but you just want to see what is their actual tuition uh, remission benefit. And then, of course, you have to get a job. You have to be accepted into a position. Mm -hmm. At least in my institution, you had to be a salary employee for at least a year before actually 
than pursuing or applying for a program and pursuing that program. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, um, you know, for parents out there who might be have children who are close to um, the age that they want to start undergrad, um, at least at Howard University for your children, if you're in, um, you can, they can go to school for free as well, just for undergraduate. Okay. Um, so obviously that's a huge benefit for it's your children plus, considering, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, so that's something to consider as well. Okay. So, so basically look at the job postings, but are there, are there postings specifically for student positions? Cause you said your first position was as a student. Uh, I don't remember the exact term, uh, but but is right. are there posting specifically geared towards students? No, not in that sense. I mean, I happened to come to Howard after I finished UNC at Chapel Hill in 2008. I had studied abroad and done some things. So I had like two classes left, just random credits I had to get. And I'm from the area, so I decided it was an opportunity to experience an HBCU because I went to UNC Chapel Hill, which is what we call a PWI, predominantly white institution. And I wanted to experience an HBCU. Going, being in North Carolina, there's lots of HBCUs that I'd visited and had um, fraternity brothers in and stuff like that and didn't actually get to go to one. So I said, let me take this time and just go to Howard University. And my godmother happened to also work at Howard, so um, was able to actually work for a center on campus that she actually had started and okay. founded. Um, so I was just a student employee, but that's because I was actually undergrad still. So that had nothing to do with what happened later. Okay, 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 okay. I see. So you just mentioned H- HBCUs. Uh, and you 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 didn't uh, expand the <laughs> the acronym, but it's uh, historically black colleges and universities, if I uh, if I remember right. well. Yeah. So and, and this is kind of the subject that that we we were going to uh, to talk about uh, because you've experienced the the PWI um, uh, like model, and then you like you said you really wanted to experience the HBCU. Uh, the HBCU model, and uh, and that's that was the first taste of it that you had, um, and uh, I really, because you've tasted both, I'd really love for you to uh, well, and and also because I know that you've had a very fulfilling, at least that that's that's how I interpreted it, uh, a journey through the the, the HBCU experience. Um, I really want maybe your your point of view on. Uh, why why HBCUs are important, what role they play for young American, African, burgeoning scientists or researchers or scholars. Uh, I really would like your input on that, especially given that you've, you know, you've been on both sides of the fence, let's say. Sure. And I appreciate you saying American, African. Uh, I know that was in my bio. I'm not sure if that used that term yourself, but um, to me, that's just your flip, flip flip that identity because it's placing emphasis on being African and being a type of African, being mm-hmm. of the African diaspora, right? Instead of being Cape Verde African or whatever, American African, it just describes where you grew up, but kind of from the Pan-African perspective of, but we all still connect as people of African descent. Um, so to me, that's what that, when you flip that term, what it means. Um, but yeah, HBCUs, um, I guess I can start with, you know, hearing from some of my other cohorts in my program as well. So I had, I've had at least several people that I've heard that I had heard in my in my program say that they were at a PWI doing graduate a graduate program okay. and decided to leave and come to Howard because they did not get the support for the type the research they wanted to do or nobody was there that could really even support them right so they wanted to research things related to the black community or the black life and experience in this country or abroad and there just wasn't that support at the institution they were at hmm. so they went to a place that they knew would support such a thing and had the expertise to support such a thing right and that to me was very illuminating of the type of graduate students you see at Howard. I mean, there's something that the scholar Manning Marable calls the black intellectual tradition, right? And it's speaking to a long intellectual lineage of being scholar activists, right? Not just producing knowledge for knowledge sake, but for, like for what, what are we doing with this knowledge? How are we applying it to improve things around us, to improve our own community, to improve our own life and experience, especially in a context of uh, American Africans, where obviously there's a large oppression historically and in the present, right? So Howard students, I noticed, were always very much mission driven. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's uh, there's psychology, and then there's something we call black psychology. And to distinguish the two is black psychology is the similar a similar vein. Like, what are we actually doing with the psychology? You know, in our courses, we might talk about Piaget and other people that were instrumental in the field of psychology. But then immediately after getting through all of that, it's like, well. What psychologists, what research is there about what concerns us specifically and how are we using that? How are we going to use that? Right. So it's 
being a scholar activist, I think is really important is, is part of that story. Um, for me, um, well, first of all, I guess, you know, I don't know, I think a lot of your audience is, is um, international and, and probably doesn't know the context of why HBCUs are important. So HBCUs began, I mean, first, I think to me, you got to start with the, the history of, of education of people of African descent in this country, right? Before antebellum, before, while there was still legalized slavery in this country, you know, people of African descent could be brutalized just for learning how to read or write, mm -hmm. right? It was, it was a very dangerous practice to even learn that. Um, so that's the context you begin with because people who want to purport that other people don't have a soul or are not fully human, of course, you wanna keep them ignorant so yeah. that they can't uh, rebel against that. But there was always resistance. There was never a moment of, of non-resistance in this context from people of African descent. Um, and one of the ways that they resisted is by learning how to read and write and then applying those skills, right? Both free people and people who were still enslaved. And there were white allies who definitely helped that process and put their own lives at risk as well, but not to the same degree of obviously the black people doing it. Um, so this is the context you start with. But even in this context, free Africans in this country started schools in the South and in the North to teach, like it's, you take initiative, take it into your own hands. If y'all are not gonna help us, we're gonna do for ourselves, period. And this was always the context prior to slavery even ending. Mm -hmm. now you have in the Civil War, institutionalized slavery ends. Immediately after, the first thing black folk do is start opening up schools mm -hmm. <laughs> and teaching each other informally and formally with no money. Didn't matter if you had money or not, right? This ended up in the later in the uh, late 19th century compelling the country black people in the south were the ones who compelled the country to have a common school or a public school education system this this was the actual initiative but unfortunately that kind of over that kind of subverted independent black education and federal money started going to all these places and instead you know in the late in the early 20th century it was it was clear it wasn't a secret that public education was not meant to educate it was meant to socialize mm -hmm. right not just not just non-anglo-saxon not just non-white people sort of quote unquote which is always being redefined but as more europeans were coming from from europe into the country they wanted to make anglo-saxons wanted to make sure that they're socialized to have our values mm -hmm. and become white people right so this is all <laughs> arbitrary obviously so in this context, but going back to right after the Civil War, the Freedmen's Bureau supports um, HBCUs being open because someone, there was the other schools weren't taking black students, right? So Howard University is founded in 1867 with a bunch of other HBCUs and specifically with the intent of teaching people of African descent. I mean, there's a lot more to that story, but this is just a brief overview. Mm -hmm. And at, at this point, um, we have around 100 HBCUs throughout the country. Mm -hmm. um, and there were a few HBCUs actually prior to the end of the Civil War that, that were founded, like Wilberforce and, and Ohio and Philadelphia. Um, but obviously, it's very important. I mean, even today, although I think HBCUs only represent 3% of the schools in this country, we, we graduate almost 20%. 20% of, almost 20% of Black graduates are from HBCUs. So okay. there's clearly still a huge need being fulfilled, right? And you have some people in popular media who downplay the need for HBCUs or question it do we still need this right we don't we're not we don't have legal segregation um mm -hmm. but you know i saw this question posed in uh, about 10 years ago to a former howard president and he said you know i i you know i don't even accept the premise of your question i would actually counter your question with what can other schools learn from the resilience of the people that have found that have have made these hbcus continue to to live mm -hmm. all these years about the culture on hbcus campus Right. This is something that's very important to this country. So in my my uh, my own family, you know, um, my grandparents were both both went to HBCUs. Um, they both actually got their undergrad degree at Shaw University, which is one of the oldest ones in North Carolina. Mm. And, um, you know, then proceeded to work at various HBCUs throughout their career. My mother was a, or my grandmother was an administrator, a dean of students at several schools at Fisk, Tuskegee Institute, um, as well as she worked at uh shaw i believe as well and my grandfather worked at dillard went to shaw taught at shaw um and, and both of them ended up for the last 20 well almost 30 years of their careers at morgan state university which is in baltimore and still okay. um, there today um, and my grandfather was a pioneer in african-american history so at a time you know he he did go to a pwi to wisconsin to get his phd and masters and 
the story of kind of his experience there kind of, again, illuminates why HBCUs in the context of having a supportive um, faculty for your research is important. So uh, when he was there, his advisor, so he graduated in 1940 with a PhD, but he had to make the case. He wanted to study Frederick Douglass. That was his hero. Okay. And he had to make the case and convince them to allow him to do so. And, the, and you know, what he was told was that black people can't objectively study black people. Oh, my. <laughs> because you're okay. biased, right? And obviously, was, when white people have been writing history about everything for, for all this time, clearly that's a huge contradiction. Of course. Um, and a smokescreen. But, you know, he was able to convince his advisor to allow him to do so because it was in his advisor's interest because that person was, I think his name was Hesseltine, was studying Ulysses S. Grant. And so Frederick Douglass had a relationship with him. And so it was, he allowed him to do so. Um, so, but this kind of yeah. so ju just for for people who are listening, we're talking. Uh, so so Quelly's grandfather is uh, Benjamin A. Quarles, and uh, he one of his uh, uh, well known uh, publications uh, books are is, is Frederick Douglass in 1948, uh, which came out of his doctoral research. So and and uh, his grandmother is uh, Ruth Brett Quarles. Um, I just, I'm just saying you because you mentioned them and I, I wanted I to, 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 to put their, their names out there. Um, but this is super interesting. And what I'm hearing is there's this uh, tendency of saying this is the way science is done. And, uh, and you know, uh, you know the, the, the cultural background and the history is not important. And what I'm hearing is, yes, it is important. And we wanted to study these subjects. We need to have space to study these these. So these subjects and i find that your grandfather was lucky that that he find a way found a way because of what you just mentioned of his uh, uh of his of the connections of uh frederick douglas to end up doing his thesis on that but he might have said just a no when you have people who are not thinking about other people so white men namely historically creating frameworks that we use to to analyze or to do other things then that racism that they might not even be aware of is reified over and over and over. And then, of course, Black people um, are, are the experience is detrimental. So, for example, even now today with all this digital technology, you mm -hmm. have facial recognition technology, right? And this largely built by uh, white data scientists and white technologists. And then, of course, then we see that this technology has a bias and criminalizes darker skinned people regularly. Yeah. So it further re reifies the racism that we see just in people, now in systems, now in technology, because Black people weren't part of the process or the experimentation process, have participants in these studies that led to this technology. Mm. And this is true in all coding. So in other words, if you don't have people involved that can recognize these things, it's like when Pepsi put out that commercial with, with, with it, where the police officer gets a Pepsi and he's happy and like, you know, there's the Black Lives Matter protest and then the Pepsi makes everything okay. Mm -hmm. There must have not been a black person in that room saying, guys, this is this is going to be a problem. Is it <laughs> like when you don't have someone there, you know, obviously yeah. writing these things, it's, it becomes a problem. So, I mean, I think, yeah, this systemic racism just is a cycle because it, it doesn't get disrupted. Um, so back, I mean, back to his story, I think, mm -hmm. you know, but that also that experience, I think, also really taught him that this notion of objectivity is going to be important to being successful. So. You know, honestly, I think objectivity, there's no such thing as absolute objectivity, right? We are all motivated to do what we do from because we are being subject, we are subjective beings. We have a certain perspective. We have an emotional tie to whatever research we're doing or else we wouldn't do it. Yeah. There would be no motivation at all, right? So um, there's no such thing as true objectivity, but you can apply objective standards to your work. And that is very important, right? But you can still admit that I'm also a subjective being. Um, and I think for him, he just knew that as a black person pioneering in a field of study that has been said this not this can't even really exist at that time, um, it was very important to put, if you want, if normally a white scholar only needs to present four pieces of evidence, I need to present 10 <laughs> because I'm, go I'm going to experience resistance, period. And that is the black experience in America, period, that you have to be twice as good as any white person to get it, to get the same level of respect or the same um, type of progress. So. Um, so he learned that early on and I think applied that standard. Um, but at the same time, you know, he was very clear about his motivation that he wanted, he was, he was writing this history that hadn't been written or continuing on a tradition of, he wasn't the first to start writing this history, but he was 
part of this phase of black history that was formalizing it and forcing it into the academy to be accepted. Mm -hmm. John Hope Franklin was another historian that was one of his contemporaries who's very well known that also was part of that process. So as these scholars did this primary research and my grandfather did like really the pivot, the seminal work on the black participation of the civil war and the revolutionary war and really wrote a lot of the work that's become common knowledge in our narratives about these things and about the black participation, he was responsible for first writing that. So it was pioneering, um, but he had to be, he had to be very objective and very fact-based and very meticulous mm -hmm. to, to start to that process. Mm, to an extreme, so the thing I is, yeah. Definitely. And I mean, always working at HBCUs and teaching at HBCUs, except for where he went to get his PhD, um, you know, he, in the 40s and 50s, Black history is becoming kind of more formalized and accepted. And even now, when you had the 60s and 70s, it's it becomes in vogue because even PWIs now want to jump on the bandwagon because there's the civil rights movement, there's the Black power movement, there's students that are demanding that this be taught. Um, so one of his books, uh, several of his books helped make that possible because they were textbooks in classrooms because they weren't textbooks to support that yet. Mm -hmm. But even throughout this process, he, you know, remained at HBCUs. He got offers from other PWIs for prestigious positions um, with more research funding. It could've, he could have, you know, potentially had a cushier job, got more work done. Um, but he always he chose to remain, they, they chose both of them, my grandfather and grandma chose to remain at HBCUs their entire careers because, at least for my grandfather, because it was very important to him. His primary purpose was, I need to teach black students to make sure that they understand themselves and their history because they will be more empowered and be more powerful people moving forward. And that is really a huge, you know, they say the truth shall set you free. Well, I would say the truth um, when applied per, when applied and taken seriously can set you on a path to power, right? It's not as simple as the truth will set you free because a lot of people hear the truth and just one ear, one in one ear out the other. But, you know, when it comes to, to black folk in America, education has always been seen as a means of freedom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As, a, as a means of liberation. So there's, you know, that tradition of education being so important to the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, he's, and I think I've, I've seen a similar thing at Howard University, like HBCUs often don't have the same resources as these other schools, right? Um, I think I read the endowment, on average, the endowment of HBCUs is seven times less than these PWIs. Wow. So you have a huge, I mean, endowments are huge for everyone that knows university structures. Endowment, endowments is what allows you to do so many things. Of course. Um, and, you know, like I would say, you know, I'm not going to romanticize HPCUs. Like we have our problems. They're not perfect. They have some systemic issues often, but professors remain there because of the same kind of mission, right? I've seen awesome professors at Howard in small offices and just filled with students. And I'm just so impressed by like, you are staying here because this is what it's about, right? Not just education for education's sake, but we're also building people up to to be more empowered. And, you know, I think the definition of power is not, is, is I, I want to define power as, as it's not um, dominating anyone else. It's not telling anyone else what to do. It's all about yourself, right? Mm. If, when you talk about power, if you are thinking about anyone else, uh, often it's like thought about as I'm going to take over someone else or, or maintain control of someone else, but that's aggression. And that's really insecurity. Yeah. Power is the ability to, def to create your own destiny and have the agency over your own destiny. And then I think when it comes, especially to the African-American context, that power has to, it's, it's not its not a true, you're not truly successful if you're not associating that power with also the ability to influence your own community positively, mm -hmm. right? We don't have the luxury of saying like, I'm, I've made it, I got this job and I have this money. Like that's not power, that's not success to me. If you're not using that influence to help others around you and help others who you know have been through a similar experience, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that is, by and large, a large part of what it means to go to an HBCU um, or a culture there. I, I find it really interesting, and uh, I had a, you know a, a nice, a great interview also with with Chris Emden that I, I think you've uh, you've listened to, and um, he mentioned, um, and I don't think he went to an HBCU, but he mentioned this issue of uh, if you are uh, if you are black in a, a PWI, eventually you'll be going through. Um, this process of like code switching and uh, you know talking the right talk and rocking the right walk to be accepted and i i think i have a feeling that uh within an hbcu all of the all of those layers of uh kind of a, a veneer that you need to put on to 
outside of that context, you don't have to do that anymore. And I think that's also power in a, in a certain way, because you are within your right to be you, to with your culture, with the way you talk, with whatever, and uh, that must have a very very positive impact and i'm always thinking of, of mm. mental health and and of um uh, you know the the because because going through through grad school is like we said uh, an ordeal of sorts and it's it's it can be taxing and but and if you're apart from just that which all graduate students go through you also have to code switch and you know appear in a certain way to feel that you're part of the group you know that's taxing no, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, it's interesting and my research has focused on racial and cultural identity of American African students and what contributes to a positive and strong identity that will help sustain you throughout the rest of your life, despite racism. But I think a lot of the disparities, no, I don't think, I'm sure that a lot of the disparities in this country between black and white people, including the so, this, this so-called academic achievement gap, where over the last five, four or five decades, all academic indicators has always been this huge deficit between black performance and white performance. And it's not an achievement gap, it's an opportunity gap. It's mm -hmm. understanding the context of this country will help you understand it. But I think there's also many health disparities, right? We see much higher rates of, of diseases that are in cancer and et cetera, always across the board between black and white people. And it's like, at some point you have to ask why. And I think the underlying issue is racism. Mm -hmm. If there's always a stress, if you always, for example, feel like you have to code switch, there's always an underlying stress. And when you have an underlying stress, it becomes chronic and you have cytokines and all these things in your body that are continuing the state of stress and eventually it's gonna lead to poor health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So when you have this underlying systemic and interpersonal racism to deal with, yes, you are gonna have poor outcomes. And I think, you know, definitely in the HBCU context, you don't have to code switch in the same way. I mean, I work at Howard and I often, you know, joke about how it's it's just a very comfortable atmosphere. You don't have to worry about everyone understanding your jokes or mm -hmm. like saying the wrong thing or someone or about the same uh, microaggressions, racial microaggressions that you're going to hear in other settings. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Nipsey Hussle, but he was a rapper from the West Coast. And, and um, but he he died tragically a few years ago. And it was funny because, you know, he had a family like black people were just really grieving when he was murdered because he just represented a lot of hope and potential. Mm -hmm. And and he was doing some really positive things. And in my office, we all watched, the, we all live streamed the funeral, right? We were all, some people were crying. Okay. That wouldn't have happened in another context because everyone really felt this as a community loss, right? So we were all kind of grieving mm -hmm. together, you know? So I think that wouldn't have happened in another context. <laughs> um, but that's the type of thing that, yeah, I think to your point, if you don't have that same stress of like, let me always make sure I'm talking in a certain way, or being a certain way so that I'm perceived, so I'm not perceived in a certain way. Um, that's yeah, that I'm taken seriously. Trip. Just just being taken seriously is, is it can be a, a worry, right? It can be a concern, right? Or just being yourself, right? Yeah. And I think it made me think of too after you know George Floyd, the George Floyd murder and Black Lives Matter movement became really strong in this country during the pandemic in 2020. I noticed, well, we probably all noticed that all these huge corporations and professional sports leagues and universities all of a sudden say Black Lives Matter on their website. They have banners on their campus. They're putting money into certain things they never would have thought of. And all of a sudden, it's a big thing. Howard didn't say that on their website because it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> we, we, that's why we're here, right? Um, a lot of that's just nominal, though. It became, it became like you have to say it or else you're not going to you know, look good, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that you have to say it means you haven't been doing enough probably all this time to address the systemic issues. Mm -hmm. Um, and now, of course, all that's kind of out the window and we're back to where we kind of were before mm -hmm. um, with people not um, doing too much to to change the paradigm. Yeah. I have this feeling that, you know, I, and I, I'd like to maybe your input on it because you're you're there, you're in the States, you know the reality, you know the, the terrain. But I have a feeling that uh, a lot of uh, people, uh, a lot of American Africans might, who who are, you know, finishing high school, might think still today in 2022 oh university is not for me and uh again i think uh, it's a missed opportunity of uh of getting the, the whole community to a higher level of education and to eventually and that's what what i i 
imagine happens with HBCUs is that with, with people graduating with different degrees, even with, with doctorates, that that these people who come from different strata of society and, and from different backgrounds, but from a community that's been you know, marginalized for a long time, that they can access uh, positions of authority, positions of, uh, I don't know, policymaking, um, positions of innovation. And I really feel that the environment founded at HBCUs or that has been created throughout these many, many decades is a, a very good environment and that, that, that people, that young people who maybe because they look around them and they, they don't, they don't have anyone to model to say, Oh, my aunt went to university. I can go to, I wonder whether you have a message for someone who's on, on the fence about, should I take my studies a little bit further before getting my jo a job and starting that part of my life? Do you have a message for them of, yes, if you're curious, if you want to learn, if, you, if you're really passionate about a subject, an academic subject, you know, go on with your studies? And, and do you think it's, it's pertinent today? Because this is kind of an idea, a feeling I have, but is it pertinent today to, to drive this messaging to, you, to people who are, who are uh, at that end of, uh, at the end of high school? Yeah, there's, there's a lot to discuss there, and I guess we don't have a long time, but I guess I would start with, you know, the, unfortunately, even today, I mean, the reality of how people are funding their education and getting a massive debt is really unfortunate. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that's that, of course. You know, I mean, I think you have to consider, like, what are you, you know, that's a whole consideration in and of itself. That's true. Um, how, how are you going to get through it? Is it worth it to really get into debt if that's your only way? But there's other ways, but that's, that's a whole other conversation in terms of the opportunity or the ability or the, um, you know, I, I guess I would take a step back and say like, people should be lifelong learners, period. And people should seek out the truth for themselves. And people should learn how to be critically conscious, which means basically being critical of all the things around you and everything you're learning and do your own research. We live in the information age where people just Google things and in, become intellectually lazy because they just look at the first search result. My daughter tells me, things and i'm like how do you know that well i googled it well google told you yeah. google's not a thing google just tell brings you results from other humans mm -hmm. <laughs> did which website did you look at what was the name of that website right mm -hmm. so being discerning of what information you're actually like claiming and and using is really important so developing those skills from an early age is really important even before you think about um things and i think so my research you know one thing i'll say too is that my research my phd and master's research really looked at in a, in a nutshell when when black students have a truthful rendering of history and looking at history, especially Africana heritage, um, their own ancestry from a long art perspective, Dr. Gregory Carr from Howard University, the chairman of African American Studies Department says that calls it the long art perspective. So not just looking at what's happened since the period of enslavement, the last 400 years, how we got to this country, at least some black people got to this country through enslavement. But then expanding that to say, what happened in the last 5,000 years? Like, if you really start to examine those things, you realize these last 400 years, there's it's a small amount of time relative to intellectual um, genealogy, right? Like, knowledge mm -hmm. itself, in a very sophisticated way, existed in ancient Africa prior to Europe being anything. Europeans came to Africa to learn at the universities. Mm -hmm. The Moors came out of Africa into Europe to actually civilize Europe. And then ironically, they're kicked out and Columbus comes to America and starts the slave trade. Um, so if you understand history and understand that, you know, for black people in particular, what I saw in my research is that when black, when black students were given their Africana heritage, especially understanding knowledge production and the history and their connection to knowledge production throughout time and space, they are transformed. First of all, they're pissed off because they're like, why didn't the school or my family or other people teach me this? <laughs> yeah. But then they also get this sense of confidence, like, oh, like, this is not foreign to us. I can do this. Right. And it's not like everyone needs to be a mathematician. But did you even have a chance to be a mathematician when you went to a school that there, there's implicit bias and implicit this, this what we call hegemony, cultural hegemony? Whiteness is pervading everything and, and basically telling us oftentimes implicitly, like, scientific pursuits are not for you they are for europeans they are for americans 
even when you look at American inventions and innovation historically, oftentimes it was done by black people, but they couldn't get patents. Mm-hmm. So white people took credit or enslaved people that did something. And then whoever could, could white man could take credit, took credit. So, but when you start to understand that, right, I think it causes students to start to think critically and then ask questions about everything around them and become critically conscious. And that's what I saw when students in this program that I was examining were um, read just, just a little bit about their heritage when it relates to knowledge production and intellectual pursuits, they had a very different kind of uh, relationship perspective on what they could do and what they wanted to do or the possibilities and empowerment. Um, and they had different conversations than with their peers. I mean, my research was done in, California, in the Bay area of California, which anyone who knows is very diverse. It's not your typical atmosphere. It's mostly actually Latinx and, and East Asian descendants there. Mm-hmm. But there was one student who told me, like, after going through that program and realizing my history, I had, it was just different. Like he said, he used to talk to his Mexican friends and they would tell them about their heritage and about the, the, just all, this, all these things. And he didn't have much to add to the conversation. But then after learning about his heritage, he had a different confidence. And he said, well, I can come to the table now. And I've told them about me and about all the contributions my ancestors have made to humankind. Mm-hmm. And he had a different confidence and a different air about himself at that point. So that's one of the effects that you see when you start to just give the time and space to do those things. And I think, you know, it does, doing that at an early age and creating programming in schools, because that's where the students are at, but it also has to be in the homes, it has to be everywhere we can, because we're fighting master narratives that pervade, that tell us that that's not what black people do, or black people are criminals, and black people don't do these things. Like these are master narratives that pervade across um, all the institutions of mass uh, socialization, including schools, most importantly. Mm-hmm. But when you flip that script and you create new narratives systematically, that's how we can see a, trans- a big change. But that's not being done enough, nearly enough, obviously, to to make a mass change. But it can be done um, as much as possible. Um, and, you know, I think it it obviously would contribute to people being in higher education, because once you can see yourself in these intellectual pursuits or in these academic pursuits, um, that's the first thing. It starts in your consciousness of, is this for me? And, 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 and if you're told that no one before you and your ancestry did it, then it, it's just, you're not gonna be as, it's just not gonna be as engaged, right? No. So I think that's gonna lead you to getting into um, more people getting into undergrad or graduate school. I mean, one study I saw was a five part study that simply putting black content in the curriculum mm-hmm made students more engaged, Mm -hmm. made them feel more connected to their schools, and ultimately led to better outcomes in their actual performance indicators. So I think performance indicators are secondary. When you give people this this information, their racial identity and cultural identity is better informed and and their beliefs, it all starts like, I created a whole model in my dissertation, but information creates your beliefs. So if you have the right beliefs, you can go the way you want. If you have beliefs that you like this doesn't make sense it's going to be cognitive dissonance you can't it's going to work against you your whole life Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's these underlying beliefs shaped by master narratives that we want to affect and change at the root and when you give people this information oftentimes they can take it themselves and continue and they're going to start questioning everything right it makes total sense to me it's it's kind of an aha moment and it kind of opens up this whole vista that they that that they didn't have because historically it's been erased from from the from the discourse and from like you said the the the, the curricula of the so the socialization uh, platforms that exist and is this something that that you're following up or it was this done just in the context of your masters and and phd so i'm exploring possibilities um just finished last year obviously so now um thinking about what's next strongly but I, what i want to do is yes put this into practice Again, not knowledge for knowledge sakes, but what are you going to do with that knowledge? So um, I want to create, or I'm in the process of working with some people to create digital learning tools for black, black and brown youth, but really any youth, right? Because everyone needs to learn how to critically think. And if you're, you know, there's this whole debate in this, or this whole movement in this country to, to remove even more truth from curriculum in schools. And there's a lot behind that, but the whole thing about critical race theory being taught in schools is a smokescreen. But honestly, mm-hmm. like critical race theory is how I examine things because this, if you don't understand the role of racism in this country is basically what critical race theory is saying, that you don't really understand what's happening or what has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not necessarily taught as a framework. This is a graduate school framework. 
But there is a whole movement, of course, to lessen the small amount of true historical truth that is in the curriculum. Um, and so, you know, a lot of schools, a lot of teachers are scared to even speak out against it, I've heard, right? So we need resources for people, for teachers and parents that need them. Um, and I think, again, a lot of stuff, uh, you know, if you can do things digitally, you can reach people all across the world and there's less of a hamper. But, you know, digital learning tools that can help youth, Black youth in particular, number one, become critically conscious or learn how to apply critical thinking skills to everything they're doing, but also really learn about their heritage as people of African descent and, and, and what that means and build a this notion of success and this notion of power that they can use to help be empowered throughout the rest of their life. And when they learn about their heritage, I mean, it's a fundamental part of, of um, giving them a solid foundation. One of the, you know, there's, there's research around parent socialization and, mm -hmm. cult and, and what they call cultural socialization. And it's very clear that when parents teach their children about their heritage as black people, and again, even, you know, when you start with slavery, everything looks like progress. But when you go further back, even more importantly, and start the story before that disruption of what people call the ma'afa, the great disruptions of Swahili word, um, then, you know, you're filling that cup with truth and with stuff that's really nourishing their sense of what it means to be black and associating that with positive things. So then when they experience the racism they are inevitably going to experience systemically and like explicitly, it doesn't have as much impact. Also on the, the, doesn't have as much impact when teachers are racist because, you know, a student can say, as a youth can say, hey, something's wrong with you. Because mm -hmm. I already know, <laughs> I already know that I'm good. So it's kind of kind of roll off me a little more mm -hmm. than, than those words might have. You know, James Baldwin, you know, said, he's an African-American author, if, for those who don't know, but said a long time ago that when a white man calls me the N-word, like, some, I, I know something's wrong with you, not with me. You know, so that's the mentality people have to have, but they have to have information to undergird and give them that foundation, I think, to, to you know, especially as youth. Um, you know, Malcolm X, this is a famous story that when he was in school, he had told his white teacher that he wanted to be a lawyer. And his teacher said, no, that's not really probably for you. You're, you know, being black, that's not really, you probably want to get into some, I forget what he said, but something related to like menial type of job. Hmm. And had Malcolm at that time, had a foundation to under, to to know like that doesn't really make sense. I can do whatever I want. I look at my ancestry, um, but he didn't have that. So of course that discouraged him. Ultimately, it led to Malcolm being who he was. So you know his journey. It was necessary for his journey, and he was one who later really understood the extent of Africana heritage and taught about it in a great way. Um, but you know, like those type of moments are pivotal for youth, um, and and our youth. You know, there's a lot of research that shows the racism that's in schools that's a detriment to, to, to our youth but if they already have what they need it's, it's it's not the same impact right so it's true and it can come earlier than than higher education for sure super super interesting now now Quelly, we're getting really to the end i'm going to ask you first one thing and then and well and the thing is if people are you know want to move the conversation forward maybe with you directly what's the best way to reach out to you um, you can email me, uh, quelly.zuccheri at protonmail.com. Um, and yeah, I would love to hear from anyone who's interested. I, you know, this is a collective movement. It's something that requires a village, requires mutual aid and support. Um, so I'm definitely open to to hearing from people that, that are interested in moving forward that cause. And now just to finish, uh, we mentioned at the, at the very beginning how uh, a PhD and Especially if you know if you go fourth year, fifth year, sixth year, it can become uh, difficult. You can feel the the urge to accept the imposter syndrome that also I believe all of us through going through a PhD go through, and you can say, ah, oh, you know what, I'm not made for this. Uh, I'm going to quit, even though you're passionate about your subject. Because I think that's what's sad is to to lose people who are passionate about studying particular subjects because at a certain point there's a critique from a, a peer or from a superior there's different obstacles that appear during graduate school and people quit what word do you have for for them to hang in there and to say no you you deserve to be there 
and you deserve to become an academic and you deserve to to follow that that dream and that passion i mean one of the things i thought of personally was just my own family background and what i you know i can't imagine the struggle black folk went through in this country to get edu you mm -hmm. know to, to even going to hbcus it's still in a very hostile environment ultimately but even some of them going to white schools i mean just thinking about that type of struggle i can't even imagine it so for me that was like again can't complain <laughs> <laughs> you this you, this is a different struggle i still it's still a struggle but it was not the same and that that helped inspire me to say you know i'm standing on other people's shoulders i think too one of the just simply for anyone like you know um it does end right you can get there like it's on you unlike other degrees you have to push it forward no one's going to force you but it does end and people told me that and of course when you're going through it that means nothing <laughs> so hopefully you can still hear it but like it does end like it did end no one's taking my degree away from me i have it on the wall it's in writing it's documented yes. it's done <laughs> it's done um so i think you know just remember it does end and yeah, like there's all types of little frustrations and problems that emerge, right? But um, there's also graces that come up, right? Mm -hmm. So like, because I kept persisting for me, so I think it'll happen for anyone else. So for example, I have uh, a good friend of mine that, you know, is older than me, but she had got her PhD a long time ago. But when she saw that, I, you know, I was towards the end, but I was struggling to just stay on myself and nobody was like keeping me accountable. She said, you know, I'll be your accountability coach. So we met every Friday, and she wasn't necessarily checking in on like, what's your research or using APA style, none of that. Just like, tell me what you did this week. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What progress have you made? I'm taking a take, you know, I'm checking on you. What progress have you made? Right. And I think that's what, like, that's a great example again of like thinking about success in terms of a community, mm -hmm. right? She's busy. She has a family. She has a career. Wait, she didn't have time to do that, but she made sure to check in with me every Friday and talk about where I was at. And that meant so much. Of course. Right. And I need, to, and I want to make sure that if I'm, if anyone else ever reaches out to me in the same way that I can be there for them um, and make sure that I'm continuing, that's a tradition to continue, you know? So I would say like, if you're, if you are doing the work and persisting, graces will come and be willing to accept help mm -hmm. because nobody that like, also don't think that you have to do it on your own because nobody in this life really does things on their own. And I, I, I'm talking to myself too, because at times I have to remember that and mm -hmm. not, um, you know, be willing to ask for help or be willing to accept support, you know, from others. So it's a great way to end this, this interview. I, I, I'm with you a hundred percent on that. We go back to the idea of, of the PhD. There's, there needs to be a village around you, but I think you touched on the point of, uh, of finding a, a mentor that, that you can identify with. And uh, well, you had the you had I don't know how it transpired that that uh, this person offered to to do this, but I I would suggest if anyone's listening, uh, and and doesn't have someone like this in their PhD or or anyway graduate school village, try and look around and find someone maybe who comes from your neighborhood and who who you know who um has kind of a similar journey has done has, has had their degree from some for some time someone who comes from your community someone with whom you have something in common and um and approach them because i know i i didn't do it and and sometimes you know if you're if you're more uh, on the introvert side it might be a challenge to approach someone and ask for this but the value that you can take out of it is so huge and i i just saw talk you were talking about it and i saw I think I saw in your face kind of the emotion of this was so good for me in in such a difficult moment and it helped me pull through. So I, I really, really recommend that you find someone that can play this role for you. And I, I know it's not easy for everyone. It doesn't come by chance to everyone. But uh, if you if you, there's some like alumni network that you can t tap into, it's right. such a precious help. That uh, yeah, it's a great um, way to finish the, this this interview. Thank you, Kweli. This was great. I really had a great time. Uh, we we've stretched the interview a little bit. This was so interesting. Um, I hope you you uh, you had a, a good time too. And uh, I I really again like you like I had said. Uh, you no, know, this 
the model of Papa PhD is not a scripted interview, so we went different ways. But I think we covered an, a nice like patch of terrain, and we went at different levels. You know, more graduate school, more general. Uh, and I am really, really uh, grateful for uh, for having had you here and having had you share all these this reflection that you've been having for all these years on these subjects. And I really wish you luck and success in uh, in taking this passion forward that you have. And uh, and creating these tools that you were mentioning because I think they they will help uh, people out there and I do think that um, just changing the way how you can project yourself into the future changes what you can do today uh, and uh, I'm a hundred percent with you on that so thank you well yeah and thank you so much for having me I've been a pleasure and I think I did release a little bit of trauma so every little bit <laughs> helps um, and yeah I mean I'm just thankful to be here thanks you know uh, i'm sure that someone listening will identify with some of what you shared and uh, i'm sure that a lot of people listening will will be inspired but some by some of what you shared too so so uh, thank you thank you for having opened up and uh, and you know be so so frank and so uh, generous in your sharing all right sure anytime Thank you for having listened to another episode of Papa PhD. If you enjoyed my conversation with Kweli Zuccheri, you can find many more conversations like this at papaphd.com or on your favorite podcast app. If you want a behind-the-scenes view of how the podcast is recorded, you can subscribe to the Papa PhD YouTube channel where every episode is recorded live. We are now on our way to 250 subscribers so if you haven't subscribed yet, do it now and join the community. Happy listening, happy sharing, and see you around in another episode of Papa PhD.